Welcome to episode 7 of Explore History's podcast on the medieval knight, chivalry, and the modern world. You will have noticed that the title of this series includes the words modern world. Yet we've thus far been spending our time looking at different aspects of chivalry during the Middle Ages. This was done so that we would have a solid grasp of what the code of chivalry was, how and why it evolved over the centuries. We are now almost ready to begin looking at the modern part of our story. Before doing so, I would like to touch upon one key element that we've yet to mention. Literature, storytelling, songs, all of those kinds of traditions. The rise of chivalry resulted in and enhanced and was reinforced by the development of a rich literary tradition that extolled the virtues, the ideals of the medieval knight. We see this tradition in the familiar stories of King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table, the legends surrounding St. George, a figure popular throughout much of Europe, a central figure in the development of chivalry in England from the 14th century. This literature solidified the importance of the medieval knight in society, was particularly important in later years when the military role of the knight was diminishing. It is easy to imagine such tales as Sir Gawain and the Green Knight or St. George's Slain of the Dragon being told in the grand halls of the great country houses, providing comfort, security, and status to those fortunate enough to be at the top of society. The literature of chivalry was not just confined to the great semi-mythical figures of St. George and Arthur. Some stories were less shrouded in myth, drawing upon contemporary society more directly and therefore having a more historical relevance to them. My favourite is without question the semi-autobiographical The Service of Ladies, written by Ulrich von Lichtenstein, a name made famous more recently with the release of A Knight's Tale starring Heath Ledger as Sir Ulrich. Ulrich von Lichtenstein was born sometime around 1200, received noble training as a page, then a squire, and in 1222 was knighted. It's likely at this time he's probably 20 to 22 years of age. He's most famous for his pseudo-autobiographical work known as The Service of Ladies. In it, he travels around doing great deeds in an effort to win the love of a lady for which he had fallen. He jousts in many tournaments, and to prove his worth, does so on many occasions dressed as a woman. As could be expected, this made him the subject of great ridicule, yet he perseveres, breaking lances and defeating all who come before him. The work was written at a time when the passion for tournaments and other knightly pursuits was at its height, and ingrained throughout the text are lessons on how to be truly chivalrous, how a true chivalrous knight should behave. This rich literature which emerged not only entertained the lords and ladies of medieval society, it taught all of society of the importance of knighthood. It instructed the knights themselves on how best to behave, what was expected of a true knight, and helped to maintain the relevance of the medieval knight in a world that was seen as military relevance diminished. The literature which emerged also gave later generations something more concrete from which to draw for inspiration. The stories they read or listened to were absorbed, embellished, reworked, reinterpreted, and made use of. Clearly, the development of the concept of chivalry and the chivalric code had great significance to the medieval world. But what of the modern? In the remaining podcasts, I will explore how chivalry has influenced and continues to influence our modern world. I will argue that from the end of the medieval period in the 16th century to today, chivalry has continued to have a profound influence on Western culture. During this time, people have constantly looked back to the ideal of chivalry for inspiration, particularly in times of great need, periods of great social and political turmoil. 
During such occasions, the chivalric ideal of good behavior and gentlemanly conduct, protection of the weak and vulnerable, self-sacrifice and duty to a higher power, be it king, queen, faith or country. The concept of chivalry and the idealized world of the medieval knight has been a source of inspiration. We see this play out from the very earliest years of the early modern period. In fact, during the transition from medieval to early modern in the reign of the Tudor dynasty. So I want to turn now to looking at the Tudors as a kind of a first example of how the um, code of chivalry, the whole concept of chivalry, has affected our modern world. And it should not surprise us to find an interest in chivalry and jousting and other knightly pursuits during the Tudor period, 1485 to 1603, since when the Tudor dynasty was established in 1485, England was still medieval. Knights still had a role to play in society and in war, although this was dramatically changing due to the applications of gunpowder and the cannons that came with it. Tournaments were extremely popular, but how and why they were held was changing. What we will see is that during the Tudor period, the concept of chivalry and all that it entailed was alive and well, but that it was now taking on a new role. Jousting tournaments and other expressions of chivalry were no longer part of a warrior's training. They were spectacles. They were celebrations of the dynasty and used to reinforce the strength and legitimacy of the Tudors themselves. So the Tudor dynasty came to the throne amidst the Wars of the Roses, 30 years of incessant conflict. And that meant that when Henry VII seized the throne at the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485, he had in no way ensured that the dynasty would remain in control. He needed to establish peace and stability in the realm if he was going to maintain his claim. He needed to demonstrate that he had the right qualities of a medieval ruler, and displays of chivalry could help with this and make his claim legitimate. Sure, perhaps not surprise us to learn that Henry VII named his first son Arthur, greatest of mythical British heroes, and one that the Tudors would continue to associate themselves with in their mythmaking. But it was with the reign of Henry VIII that we see chivalry more closely tied to the monarch. Right from the very beginning of Henry VIII's reign in 1509, it was clear that the ideals of chivalry would play a part. Henry VIII came to the throne at the age of 18. He was athletic and full of testosterone. He had a passion for hunting and jousting and, of course, spectacle. He was out to prove himself to his English subjects and the rest of Europe. Polydore Virgil, an early Tudor historian, provides us with glimpses of chivalric episodes at Henry's coronation ceremonies, where tilting took place, and, quote, for several days thereafter, there were tournaments and many sorts of games. We see the first year of Henry's reign was filled with tournaments, with Henry himself taking part in the joust. Tournaments were a regular feature of Henry's reign, and he took part in the jousting right up until 1526, when he was unhorsed and seriously injured. Modern historians have spent considerable time debating chivalry at Henry's court and focused considerable attention upon Henry's greeting to his wife Anne of Cleves, his fourth wife. When Anne of Cleves arrived in England, Henry, with four of his followers, donned a disguise and rode to Rochester so that he might see his new bride before the official meeting in London. Some historians have argued that Henry's actions were due to his impatience to see his new bride. No doubt he was disappointed, as she was nowhere as cute as Hans Holbein had painted her. More recently, however, the historian Retha Warnicke has argued that Henry was in fact acting according to a specific chivalric courtship ritual towards foreign brides that he had evolved, that had evolved since the 15th century. As early as the 14th century, European monarchs and courtiers 
began wearing disguises at court and at tournaments, and writers of romance literature, often with Arthurian associations, developed tales of knights who wore disguises while courting their ladies, so she might fall in love with them because of their virtuous actions, not just their wealth and lineage. Following such rituals, practices were deemed extremely important as they were not just about properly greeting a new bride, but were in fact related to the personal honour and royal dignity of the monarch. A way for Henry to demonstrate to European rulers that he was a hospitable and courteous ruler, and at the same time promote the continuation of his dynasty. The most impressive representation of chivalry for Henry's reign was no doubt the Field of the Cloth of Gold. The Field of the Cloth of Gold was a three-week-long meeting between Henry VIII and Francis I of France, outside of Calais, designed to celebrate a new friendship between the two kings. More importantly, show the other monarchs of Europe that France and England could get along. It was masterminded by Henry VIII's Mr. Fixit, Cardinal Wolsey, who organized a spectacle of unprecedented size, which saw almost the entire English ruling class shipped across to France. Besides the king and cardinal, there were two dukes, ten earls, seven bishops, twenty-four barons, three knights of the garter, eighty-three knights bachelors, five knights, ten chaplains at duchess, six countesses, and on and on and on. Five thousand people in total. And that's just the English side. This was a spectacle on a grand scale. The valley where they met was artificially leveled so that neither Henry or Francis would have an unfair advantage over the other. Huge pavilions were constructed and silken tents decorated with gems and cloth of gold. The English erected a temporary palace of four blocks with a central courtyard, each side being about 300 feet long. The walls were 30 feet high, made of canvas, painted to look like stone. A temporary gilt fountain was built with spouts for claret, spiced wine, and water. In one month, Henry's retinue consumed 2,200 sheep, as well as similar amounts of other foods. 2,800 tents were erected for less distinguished guests. Three weeks of entertainment ensued where the two kings tried desperately to outdo the other in jousting, even against each other, wrestling, where Francis threw Henry to his back, dancing, banquets, and fashion, where they kept putting on different outfits, trying to outdo the other. One estimate puts Henry's expenses at £13,000. That's over £4.5 in today's money. A recent writer's described the Field of the Cloth of Gold as, quote, the most elaborate chivalric spectacle imaginable, and the centre of activity was the tilt yard constructed for the occasion. Several days of the conference were given over to jousting, fighting at the barriers, and other chivalric exercises performed in the presence and under the judgment of the queens of England and France. Perhaps the most revealing detail is the Tree of Chivalry, which was erected within the tilt yard. It was elaborately constructed of Damascan cloth of gold and served as a place for Henry and Francis and the other knights who participated in the tilting to display shields in which they proclaimed the identity they had assumed for the tourney. The Tree of Honour alluded to many famous tournaments throughout Europe and to innumerable combats and adventures recorded in romances from the time of Kretschmer and Detroit onwards. So the Field of the Cloth of Gold had specifically been designed to display Henry as the perfect chivalric prince, who by his exploits would take his rightful place alongside the heroes of the past. Upon Henry's death in 1547, England would enter into a decade of extreme uncertainty. Henry's son Edward would take the throne, but as he had been raised a Protestant, he and those who effectively ran the government for him, his uncle Somerset and then Northumberland, 
would swing the kingdom more directly towards the new faith, causing great anxiety amongst Catholics. A number of very serious uprisings would take place that would challenge the authority of the government. When Edward died from tuberculosis in 1553, the kingdom was again thrown down a rocky road as his half-sister Mary, a fanatical Catholic, came to the throne. Mary would take the country back towards Catholicism and go as far as persecuting heretics. Protestants, anyone in possession of a Bible, as many as 280 being burnt at the stake. Perhaps more problematic was Mary's need and desire to get married and produce an heir, a problem because she chose her cousin, Philip of Spain, and the English hated the Spanish. The result was considerable unrest, more than a few rebellions, and continuous tensions between the various factions. Tournaments and other displays of chivalric behavior had an important part to play in the drama that was unfolding at the English court and in moderating the behavior of both sides. Indeed, chivalry became an important part of court propaganda. From the moment Philip of Spain and his entourage landed in England for the royal wedding, there were problems. The English overcharged the Spanish for everything. The Spanish were rude. They looked down upon the English. There were fights, and some reports suggested knife fights at court, and even on a daily basis. In order to bring some order to the relations, the Spanish decided to organize a chivalric contest. This was a way for the two sides to compete, but in a way that was controlled and followed the prescribed modes of behavior. It was a safer and more civilized outlet for aggression. The tournament turned out to be so popular that they held several more throughout that winter. Unfortunately, a few tournaments would not be enough to quell the growing fears, fueled by increased persecutions from 1555, and Mary's renewed alliance with the papacy. Many Protestants were forced to flee the country or suffer the consequences. As Henry VIII's court was still in many ways medieval, we should perhaps not be surprised that he and his courtiers maintained a fascination with jousting and chivalric ideals. However, the court of Elizabeth is widely recognized as being much different. By 1558, when Elizabeth ascends to the throne of England, the country had moved out of the medieval period and into the early modern era. Elizabeth's court was much, much more a Renaissance court. It was refined and cultured, less rough than Henry's. Yet as we will see, chivalry and all that it entailed arguably played a more prominent role than it had during the reign of Henry VIII. During the reign of Elizabeth, there was an interest in chivalry from the perspective of a society looking back what had been on celebrating the past glory of England. Interest in chivalric pursuits, the tournament, the stories of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table continued to be of general interest. However, the real significance of the continued fascination with chivalry was how it was manipulated, embellished and modified to reflect upon the monarch herself. Elizabeth came to the throne as a young woman who by all rights should not have been there. She was third in line behind her half-brother Edward and her half-sister Mary. Protestant herself, Elizabeth spent much of her early life under suspicion, imprisoned and hovering near the executioner's block. When Mary died and Elizabeth came to the throne, England had been through several decades of religious upheaval and uncertainty, social unrest and threats from abroad. Elizabeth was therefore in a very tenuous position, a young woman ruling in a man's world amidst great religious intrigue. How then could she secure the throne? There are many different ways that Elizabeth and her counselors worked to establish her as the rightful monarch. The one that is of interest to us is, of course, the manipulation of chivalric ideals, something which Elizabeth and her supporters used effectively to establish her not only as a rightful heir, but also as a virgin queen. 
We get our first glimpse of Elizabethan chivalry from the Tudor historian Holinshed, who described a scene at Elizabeth's coronation banquet. Quote, In the meantime, whilst her grace sat at dinner, Sir Edward Dimmock, knight, her champion by office, came riding into the hall in fair complete armour, mounted upon a beautiful courser, richly trapped in cloth of gold, entered the hall and in the midst thereof cast down his gauntlet, with offer to fight with him in her quarrel that should deny her to be the righteous and lawful queen of the realm. The queen, taking up a cup of gold full of wine, drank to him thereof and sent it to him for his fee. Displays in chivalry continued and increasingly became associated with Elizabeth. Soon after her coming to power, it became customary to hold accession day celebrations every November 17th, the day she took the throne. These celebrations provided many opportunities for individuals to demonstrate their support through acts of chivalry. For example, quote, these annual exercises in arms solemnized the 17th day of November were first begun in occasion by the right virtuous and honorable Sir Henry Lee, master of Her Highness's armories, and now deservedly knight of the most noble order, who, of his great zeal and earnest desire to eternize the glory of Her Majesty's court in the beginning of her happy reign, voluntarily vowed during his life to present himself at the tilt armed the day aforesaid yearly there to perform in honor of her sacred majesty the promise he formerly made whereupon the lords and gentlemen of the said court incited by so worthy an example determined to continue that custom and have ever since yearly assembled in arms accordingly so what we have here is an individual in sir henry lee and others establishing a tradition of tilting on Elizabeth's accession day to honor and protect the queen. In doing so, he no doubt was gaining the queen's favor, but he was also encouraging others to do so. The accession day tilts were elaborate spectacles which drew upon myth and romance. Knights would dress up in costume, disguising themselves as wild men or a phoenix or a frozen knight and other fantastical characters. In the tilt of 1584, we're told that tilters entered the tilt yard adjoining Whitehall Palace in pairs with trumpets blowing. Combatants had their servants clad in different colors. Some were disguised as savages, others as Irishmen. Others had horses' manes on their heads. The horses were also decorated, some equipped like elephants. For many of the tilts, combatants dramatized themselves as knights of romance, drawing heavily upon Arthurian literature. And of course, at the center of each spectacle sat the queen. Christmas holidays were another occasion with chivalric displays, often with knights fighting in foot combats, so sword fighting, spear. But of course, we find significant elements of chivalry in Tudor literature as well, such as Spencer's The Fairy Queen. In Canto 10 of Book 2, Spencer has Prince Arthur sit down to read a history of the kings of Britain. In this, Elizabeth, quote, becomes the direct descendant and heir to the chivalric lineage Arthur discovers, so that, in allegorical terms, Arthur's chivalric quest for the Fairy Queen in the poem represents the movement of British history towards Elizabeth Tudor. The histories of Fairyland and the land of chivalry thus combine to form a history of England which culminates, and gloriously so, in the person of Elizabeth, both the direct descendant of the historic Arthur and the object of his chivalric quest in the poem for perfect virtue. So what's the significance of this? Well, really this is central to the development of the cult of the Virgin, of creating a new identity for Elizabeth. This was extremely important because Elizabeth's reign was a period of immense change where England was transformed into a Protestant nation. And this uneasy transition saw great change in religious observance and popular pastimes. 
With this came the tearing down of the Catholic faith, and this meant a great deal of anxiety in society. It meant threats on the Queen's life at times, and it meant the destruction of Catholic ceremonies, festivals, and holidays. The religious calendar was changed dramatically. Some have argued that the chivalric festivals such as the Accession Day tilts and St. George's Day celebrations were deliberately offered as a substitute for the old Popish Saints' Days and holidays. So a passion for the trappings of chivalry and court spectacles and pageantry was not unique to England, something that could be found through many of Europe's monarchies. The rise of national monarchies during the 16th century used chivalry and its religious traditions to focus religious loyalties on the national monarch. In Elizabethan England, the ceremonial of chivalry was one of the few important traditional forms of pageantry that survived the Reformation, as popular pastimes, especially those with religious connotations, came under censorship from the government and religious reformers. As we will see, the use of chivalry by British monarchs doesn't end with Elizabeth. And we will take this up in our next podcast when we look at the Stuart period, another period of intense anxiety, social unrest, very significant change. And we will see, like with the Tudor period, that chivalry was something people found they could use. They could use it to inspire. They could use it to give them something familiar, something that would maybe put a break on bad behavior, expect something better. We see this in Elizabeth's reign in particular, where it helps to sort of hold up her monarchy to justify her being queen and the Tudor dynasty being in power, we see it again when the Stuarts come to the throne in 1603. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, podcast. Uh, we'll be getting on to the next one very shortly where we will look at the Stuart period. Um, if you like it, please like the podcast and um, we will get on to the next one as soon as we can. I hope you enjoyed it.